Well, it's certainly a real pleasure and blessing for Marlene and I to be here. I think this is our 40th conference, and um, we didn't start coming until 81, but uh, I think the Robinsons and probably Pam and Roger Fellows uh, probably outrank us, but that's good. And um, we always love coming here uh, for many, it still is for us, but for many, many years it was the highlight of our children's summer. They couldn't wait till Terry came. Of course, the downside was then school comes, but Terry was worth it. just want to personally thank Cliff and his family for all their work uh, behind the scenes. We just show up and enjoy what's been uh, accomplished. But um, if any of you have, have any responsibilities, even a Sunday school picnic, you know that this wasn't the Sunday school picnic. It's probably like trying to herd kittens together and get this thing together, but we are very, very thankful. So I don't know how well you've been tracking the evening services in the book of Job. Um, my wife hasn't missed a beat. In fact, this morning, um, she actually kind of was like Mrs. Job. And her words were few, but they were to the point. And um, we were sleeping, and we heard the rain on the roof and all of that stuff. Marlene jumped up, opened up the blinds, and of course it was overcast. And, and of course she said it in a much more kind of eloquent King James, but I'll paraphrase what she said. She said, well, good luck, Don, <laughs> in your sermon today. Uh, pretty well, everybody's going to be asleep. Well, I was going to continue the Jobian dialogue, and I was going to say, Marlene, you talk like one of the foolish women, but when you've been married 50 years, you know not to say that. <laughs> and so I said to Marlene, well, will you be awake? And she looked at me with her beautiful blue eyes, and she said, well, Don, I'll try my best to stay awake. And she left her room. <laughs> but it is a real blessing to be here. We've been assigned a tremendous topic, the doctrine of justification. And we've been assigned a wonderful, wonderful text, Romans chapter 3. And I'd ask you to take your Bibles, your tablets. Uh, pretty soon, I suggest we'll just have a little something in our head that'll bring all this to our minds, but Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Someone over there couldn't see my blue eyes, so. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace for no reason at all. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray again. Our Father, we come into your presence and we thank you that the God that we've been learning about from the great book of Job is our friend, is our Savior. He is far greater than anything we can ever imagine, and yet he seeks to send his Son to be our substitution, our propitiation, our redemption, and we will see to be our justification. We've had a good week, but it's easy to get weary just with the busyness and strange beds and kids and all the other things, and so we ask for the work of your Spirit that he would work in us, that he would not only anoint my mouth and my mind, but our ears and our minds and our hearts. Work in us, we ask, so that in the eternities to come, your Son will receive all the applause and all the glory and all the credit. Amen. I was born in 1949, so in a real sense, I, I was born in the TV era. And um, I was probably partially raised by the television, uh, the one-eyed monster, the idiot box, and all that stuff. And um, of course, when I was a kid, I loved cartoons, still do, and cowboy programs. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things and I began to watch a program that just appeared every once in a while. It wound up being my most favorite program of all, and that is Columbo. Now, I don't mention old stuff like Mark does, that nobody heard of before, but how many here have heard of Columbo? Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. That's great. Well, I love that program, and, and I suppose for two reasons. The first, of course, is the detective himself. Uh, Peter Falk plays, uh, I believe he's passed away now, plays this guy, Lieutenant Columbo, from the Los Angeles Police Department in Homicide. And what is very interesting is that pretty well all of his cases are high class. Right? He's not working Skid Row. He's not working the north end of Hamilton. Uh, he, he works in the big places of L.A. and Hollywood, and, and he's always sent to investigate, you know, a movie star or a great sports athlete or a doctor or somebody like that. Now, what's interesting about Columbo is that he himself is kind of frumpy. He, he wears this old, I guess, trench coat. And I'm glad it's television and not television because <laughs> between his trench coat, his half-smoking cigar, and his dog, I'll bet it isn't pretty. And then you throw in coffee, and it seems in most of his pro uh, programs, he hasn't slept that night before. So Now, what's interesting about Plumbo is that he, he appears to be absolutely incompetent. He's fumbling around, 
his pad to make notes, and then he's looking for his pencil, and he's, you know, and he's talking away, and then he gets distracted, and, oh, are those those strange orchids from, and, and you think, what in the world's going on here? He, he's absent-minded, and he's seemingly confused, and sometimes he asks the dumbest questions. But if you watch the program, you, you get to like this guy, and, and you get to understand in Zamo his modus of operation. I think that's Latin, I'm not sure. <laughs> now, the other thing about the program is, and you would think it'd be a spoiler alert, but what they do in this program for the first 15 or 20 or 30 minutes, they tell you who done it. And they tell you who done it to who. And they tell you when it was done and where it was done and how it was done and why it was done. Now, this is a detective program. And you would think, spoiler alert, after 20 minutes, may as well flick the thing over, off or go over to a Boston Broom game or something. But amazingly, for the next hour or so, you give it to it. And you think, how in the world does he solve that? Now, I've been listening this week, and we've been jogging through Job. Mark has a lot of those. You gallop through Galatians and things like that. I don't know why it's not planned, but Mark and I often are not at the same time, but in similar places. They'll have me first at Lauraville in Pennsylvania or in North Carolina, and then they'll bring in Mark the next year to clean up the mess and mop this thing up and set everything right. Okay? And, and Mark preaches these great, great sermons by galloping through Galatians or flipping through Philippians or jogging through First John or something. And, and this has been his best, 42 chapters in three nights. I don't even know what he's going to do tonight and tomorrow night. But, um, so I thought, well, if Mark can do that, if he can preach a sermon on 20 chapters, that I can do a little combo today. And what I'm going to do is start at the end of our passage and go the other way. If you stay with me, it, it hopefully by 12 or 1, it should make sense. Now, as we look at this passage, and remember, our topic is justification. It is the great doctrine, the standing doctrine of the church. You're not a church if you get this wrong. I don't care what else you do, what else you teach. If you get this wrong, you're not a church. And what we want to see this morning is two things. And as I mentioned to you, I think, last year at the carry, the neat thing about being a pastor is you tell people you have two points, but you really have about six or seven but you can just kind of sneak them in there and people say, oh, won't be bad, two points. But by the time it's over, it's six or seven. So just a spoiler alert. First of all, what we want to see this morning is the divine problem in justification from verse 26. And then what we want to see is the divine solution for justification in verses 21 to 25. See the combo part? Um, we're going to find out right at the beginning what the problem is and what this is all about. And then we should be absolutely intrigued to see how 
God's going to solve this problem. And it's only a problem that God can solve because only God has the problem. Nobody else has the problem in justification. Now, mind you, we'll see that we have a problem. <laughs> we have a big problem. But nothing like the problem God has. So first of all, the divine problem in justification in verse 26. Now, the problem starts with God. The problem starts with who God is and what he is like. Did you notice that phrase in verse 26? His righteousness. God has a multitude of attributes or characteristics, things that we ascribe to him that um, from our poor human perspective begin to give us glimpses and insights into who God is and what he is like. We will take all eternity in Theology 101. And that would be wonderful, won't it? But the problem with God, and I put that in quotes, of course, is he's righteous. He's impeccably holy. He not only has no sin, but he's incapable of sinning. You can do the white glove test on God, and you go you can go way back into eternity, or you can look at history as it's unfolded, or down to the present day, or into the eternities to come, and you will not find one dust particle of sin in God. Now you know what's the staggering thing about this, that God is absolutely holy, He's pure a pure eyes than to look at iniquity. And that doesn't mean just glance at it, but to actually look at it and see it for all its filth. You know, God has never been like you have been if you're a parent. And one of your children never done something wrong, and inwardly you're trying to be stern, but or outwardly you're trying to be stern, but inwardly you're kind of smiling and laughing. And saying, oh, that actually was pretty funny. How many things that guy do that? But God's never been amused by my depravity. God is perfectly upright. Now, what's amazing about this, at least in the human realm, all God has to work with is sin. Isn't that true? If you're saved this morning, you know that's true with you. And if you do watch CNN or CBC or Fox or whatever. There's nothing but sin. Every once in a while, just to give us some comic relief, they have a dog being played a piano or something like that. They just kind of, well, maybe this really isn't as bad as it seems. But it is. It's horrific. God is righteous. And that's his problem. But our text in verse 26 explains it a little more so that we can see that his very character and his essence and his nature puts him in a very, very difficult position. 
he is righteous, so that he might be just. God interacts with the world that is continually since Genesis chapter 2 finished. The best thing about me is in the nostrils of God. But he decided in his infinite eternal wisdom to get involved in this mess down here. But he has to get involved in such a way that he always maintains and vindicates and upholds his justness, his righteousness, his holiness. That's hard to do. And, and if you're a Christian, have you ever gone to a new job and you determined at first that you're going to be a real clear-cut Christian? And then you begin to say, well, you know, they're having a real influence on me here and I do have to fit in. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't like all this stuff, but some of the jokes are funny and, you know, I, I, I can go to that thing and be, be in jail, I, you know. And, and, and before you know it, uh, you're like the old Tim Hortons. You go in to get a box of donuts and you come out smelling like smoke. But God never smells of smoke. He is at all times maintaining his justice. Now the world doesn't think that. The book of Job's been very, very helpful in that. But <laughs> you, you, the fire sweeps through an area and people shake their fists at God and I've talked to people who said, well, I, I could never believe in God. You know, I prayed, I prayed, and I really believed, and he let my mother die, or whatever it might be. And, and, and our world is absolutely convinced if there's a fault in this world, ultimately it's just that. But God says, I've devised a plan of salvation that constantly maintains my justness my uprightness. Well, he's devised a way of saving people. Notice what the end of verse 26 says, so that he might be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. He, he is going to maintain his holiness. There, there is not going to be a speck of scandal in his administration. There isn't going to be the, even a little bone of a skeleton in his closet that he's going to save people who have tons of bones in their skeletons in his closet. Let, let's look how they're described in verse 23. This is the problem that God is working with when it comes to saving people. At the end of verse 22, for there's no distinction. Yeah, we love equal opportunity. We love everybody on the same level. And I love that when it comes to the gospel. And we've got to start with the fact that we're all at the same level. For, or because, let me explain in verse 23, for all have sinned. 
Every person who's come into this planet has sinned. Now, that verb there is in the earth tense. It's something that happened in the past. And Paul could be referring to what happened in Genesis 3. He'll pick up that again in the last half of Romans 5. <laughs> because of one man's disobedience, we've all sinned. And, and the difficulty that God has is saving people who in their foundation deliberately and willfully disobeyed God in the environment of everything being absolutely perfect. Everything. There wasn't even a weed. There wasn't even a thorn. There wasn't, I guess there were bees, but they never bugged you. I guess they didn't call bugs bugs before the fall. But uh, we sure call them that after the fall, don't they? But it goes on to say, and falls short, in verse 23, of the glory of God. Now that falling short there is in the present tense. What it means is that we're continually doing that. What it means practically is that as much as I might think in my head, well, that's not fair, Adam sinned and I get the rap for it. What the text says is that every day of my life, I've ratified Adam's decision. I said, way to go, Adam, you're the man. Oh, Jesus will take forbidden fruit. We're so arrogant, we will decide if a person should be born or not. We will decide that when and how a person should die. We'll even decide if I'm going to be a man or a woman or a part of each or for a week this and a week that. We are so arrogant. I don't even think Adam envisioned the kind of fallout from the fall. And we're constantly saying, Adam, wait a minute. Right on, man. That was the right decision. Wow. Notice, it's all. That includes everybody. <laughs> Those are the kind of people that God has to justify well to maintain his purity, his holiness, and his absolute justice. So that's the problem. We, we've all been involved in a minor way with that. There are people who have come into our lives, maybe could be even one of our children who have persistently sinned and disobeyed and we wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with the balance of how do I stand for the holiness of God and yet love that person? You don't have to raise your hand, but we've all, not only in the past, but in the present, wrestle with it, don't we? How do I love that child who has walked away from everything that is true and right and yet be faithful to God. It's a tough dilemma. Did you know Joseph had that in the Christmas story? He married, engaged to this beautiful girl. Finds out she's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. And what's his dilemma? How do I be faithful to God and still love that girl? It's tough. It's really tough. And if it's tough for you, and if it's tough for me, if I can put it in that language, it's really tough for God. 
How do I maintain the spotless purity of my administration and yet bring into my kingdom people who have fallen in Adam and re reinforced and ratified that choice a zillion times in their life? So that's the divine problem. What's the divine solution? Well, it may surprise us because um, I don't know why I'm looking at my notes. I never look at my notes. But it may surprise us that the divine solution comes from where the problem comes. Look what verse 21 says. Now remember, the problem is the righteousness of God. But it says, <coughs> but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. And verse um, 25, God's righteousness. God's problem is his righteousness. God's solution is his righteousness. This is absolutely astounding. Uh, people say, well, I, I have a, a sister. She says, ah, the Bible's man-made. This man thought this out, but the person man they're designing to oppress women. And first of all, no man in his right mind would ever write this Bible. Uh, because men are full of themselves, and this Bible takes that out pretty quick. And no man, no woman, no think tank could come up with a solution. Because frankly, first of all, we don't care a rip about what God's problems are as long as he's coming through. And secondly, who'd have ever thought of this? The very thing that causes the problem, the righteousness of God, will be the thing that is the solution. The righteousness of God. Now, spoiler alert, you don't have to go back there, but Paul up front in chapter 1 tells us in verses 16 and 17 what this letter is about, and it's the gospel of God. And in that gospel, what is revealed? The righteousness of God. When I was a kid, there was a song, What the World Needs Right Now is Love, Sweet Love. And I was saved then at 17, and I thought, no, what the world needs now is righteousness. Sweet righteousness. Holy righteousness, just righteousness. And where in the world will that come from? Now, we want to take a few minutes before we close to look at this righteousness of God, and we want to see it in the light of four things. See, this is where it gets tricky for a preacher. I had two points. Now I had four more. What a great thing to be a preacher. So I got four points in my second point. First of all, we want to see where is the righteousness of God revealed. How in the world would we ever find out about this righteousness? It's what we desperately need to be right with God. How about the Book of Mormon? No. How about the Quran? No. How about Brad's existential philosophy? No. How about this or that or that, whatever it might be? And we'll never find the answer. The righteousness of God is revealed in the scriptures. That's what it says. In verse 21, but now, 
The righteousness of God has been made manifest. And this verb here is in the perfect tense with a, a passive mood. And what it means is that this righteousness of God has been revealed in the past not by us discovering it, not by us putting our heads together, not by having Packer and Sproul and MacArthur and Piper and all these guys getting their heads together, or Augustine or Calvin or Wesley or any of them. It has been revealed by God. And we would have never known about it if it had not been revealed. And it's revealed through the law and the prophets. Now that's shorthand for the Old Testament, for the Scriptures. And that's why, if you're in a Hathison church, they have a whole Bible. They don't just teach the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, it's constantly saying, coming soon to a planet near you is a salvation that is out of this world. It's coming. He's coming. And... It almost seems like Columbo. It seems kind of bumbling and incompetent. A little thing here and a little thing there. And you go through all these periods of judges and wicked kings and Babylonians and all these other characters. The funny names. And you think, what in the world is God doing? He's revealing the righteousness of God that I desperately need if I'm going to be saved. Now, we need to be people of the Word. A brother, I think it was last night, said, listen, it can be the greater, the good news, even the worst of preachers. We can have dancing girls up here, we can have slides and presentations and all kinds of things. But oh, it's God who's got to open our eyes and our hearts to see this and to get this. I was sitting there the other day um, with Daniel's great sermon, um, <coughs> and there were a couple of young fellows sitting in front of me. They were behaving very well, but I'm sure they didn't get much. And I thought, if Daniel would only speak about Paw, Paw Patrol, he'd have those kids' attention. Or, you know, Thomas the Train, or whoever it might be. And God in the Word has revealed to us absolutely what we need, and that is righteousness. Now the trouble is, I need perfect righteousness. In, in God's classroom, 99 is a flunk. Boy, if I'd ever got 99, I would have thought they got the wrong paper, or I would have thought something happened. I was thrilled to get like a 72 or a 73. But to think you'd need 100% to pass every day, not just on exams, in all of your actions, in all of your attitudes, in all of your motives, in all of your reactions, in all of your responses, 100%. You know, Job was doing great. And God said, that Ellie, you die, eh? <laughs> and he says, yeah, you know what the problem is? It isn't because you're sending or suffering, but your suffering is like this stick in a, in a pond on a farm. 
It looks so nice and good and calm. But you start mucking around in there with uh, a stick, and there's old tires, and there's old boots, and there's beer cans, and there's, there's all kinds of junk in that pond. And you start mucking around in my heart. Even though I've been saved almost 57 years, it's amazing what comes to the surface. Stuff that I hadn't even thought about in years. And it's still there. Recently, a six-year-old kid shot a teacher. I probably would have done that, but I would have never thought of that when I was six. But, um, and, and of course, it's a major crisis, and we're going to need um, to find out what's wrong with our system that a six-year-old kid would take a pot shot at a teacher. And the problem is that out of his heart came over, and he's only six. Out of my heart comes adultery, comes homosexuality, comes lying and deception and all these things. And it's all there. And the only reason I haven't done it is because of God's grace. And I need the word of God to come to me and be a mirror to show me what I really look like. And then that's uh, no, I feel pretty good. <laughs> Who knows what's going on inside there? But if you take that place, you realize that there's growth in there that you don't even know how to describe. I don't know what's wrong with them. And there's things in our hearts that are, that are repulsive and repugnant and abomination to the Lord. You see, I'm not just a nice guy with a few character flaws. I'm a sinner who, if I could, I'd ratify Adam's choice every second of every day of my life. But righteousness came. And it was revealed in the Word. Secondly, this righteousness is um, realized in the Son of God. Notice what it says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there's no distinction in verse 23. And then it says, and are justified in verse 24 by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God in verse 25 put forward as a propitiation by his blood. You, you see, there's a method to the madness of the morning. There's redemption, there's substitution, there's dealing with the wrath of God. And all of these things are absolutely crucial. And the interesting thing is that the only place that the righteousness of God is found on this planet is in Jesus. It's not found in the church. It's not found in baptism or the Lord's table. It's certainly not found in the priest or the rabbi or the pastor. And it's certainly, certainly not found in the ordinary people in the church. And yet the irony is that every unbiblical religion <laughs> says that there's righteousness that you can do, that you can bring to God that he will accept. And the Bible says, eh, survey says, no. There's only one place, really one person, where the righteousness of God is found on this planet, and that's in Jesus Christ. 
wonderful, isn't it? Now, no wonder they hated him without a cause. Because, like the fellow said the other day, you're either going to get in the canoe or you're going to stay on the shore. And the trouble is, I want something desperately to hold on that's good about me. And there's nothing. You know that Jesus Christ had to die for my preaching as much as for my preconversion swearing. It's sobering. I don't think there's any more sobering words in the entire Bible than Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to Romans 3, verse 20. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of people who deliberately, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And, and we can look at this chapter and say, or these chapters and say, wow, they just wrote that last week, didn't they? But you know every age can. You know, not every age celebrated homosexuality, but every age had kids who knelt back to their parents, who were envious, who destroyed other people with words, who were proud and arrogant. Every age. There has never been a Christian time. It didn't happen with Constantine. It didn't happen in the Middle Ages. It certainly didn't happen in Britain or America, and certainly not in Canada. You know, we're so sinful that we even use Christianity to tell us how righteous we are, how good we are. We're all like the guy stuck in his thumb, pulled in his thumb, and said, what a good boy am I? I thank you, Lord, I'm not right other people. I go to church. I've had communion. I've stayed with the same woman for 50 years. I've, 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 I've. But there's only righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only person who came into this world. He could have come maybe at 30, done some miracles, preached some sermons, and died on the cross. Except I need two-year-old righteousness. Where am I going to find it? I need snotty teenager righteousness. Where am I going to find it? And you know the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, was born into this world, and he was the perfect two-year-old. You know, he never banged on the bathroom door and said, Get out of there, you ugly sisters of mine. He never stole another kid's baseball. He never mouthed off to his parents. He was perfectly righteous at one years of age, and two years of age, and 12 years of age, and all the way up. And if you're saved today, do you know if you check your file in the courts of heaven, it will say, not this name, but Don Theobald, perfect two-year-old. That's amazing. Perfect teenager. Perfect 22-year-old. Perfect 30-year-old. Now, where did that come from? Well, it came from Jesus. He not only died for me, but he says, live for me. 
He was the spotless lamb that I should have been, that you should have been. God didn't look down and say, well, this is going to be a poor semester. I better mark him the truth. He said, there's no getting in unless you have perfect righteousness. This only found in Jesus. It's not found in the right theological system. It's not found in going to the right church. And you should go to the right church. And you should hopefully have at least decent theology that's moving in the right direction. But that isn't where it's found. It's only found in Jesus. And there you have to, well, that brings us to our third point. This righteousness is only received by faith. Paul's tripping over himself in these few verses. Have you noticed it? Now, but now the righteousness of God in verse 21 has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith for all who believe. Then he goes on in verse 24, they're justified by his grace. In verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, and he justifies those who believe in him. You know what God wants me to do as a sinner? He wants me to come out with my hands up. And then you know what he does? He kisses me. He pats me down. You know what he's looking for? Some hidden righteousness that I might still be trusting in. You see, lots of religions don't mind Jesus and them. But God does. If there was a glass of water here, a big glass of water, how much poison would have to be in it before I drank it? <laughs> One little drop and I wouldn't touch it. And you see, I just need a little drop of sin, and it ruins the whole thing. It ruins the whole thing. And I have to come out with my hands up. I have to confess I've got absolutely nothing going for me. Even my best work has stinking menstrual cracks. And all I've got going for me is Jesus. You see, what the gospel is, is you divestify di- di- whatever you do of your, all your, your assets, and you take everything in your portfolio, and you put it in one basket, Jesus Christ. And if he goes under, you're going under. You're not a little bit in oil, a little bit in gold, a little bit in this, a little bit in that. It's all in Jesus or nothing. And he says, Don... As long as you're saved, it's by faith. Ten years in, I'm not starting to get impressed with you because now you're a pastor. <laughs> if anything, you just in more trouble. I'm not impressed with you that you marry a nice wife. If anything, <laughs> it's just going to show your sin. I'm not impressed that you got four kids. It'll just show you how sinful you really are. Because you see, those little darlings, as soon as they came from the womb, they bore my likeness. They had my image. And from the womb, they were like the old man. Same. And God says, the only thing you've got going for you is Jesus Christ. There's nothing else in this world. 
There's no church, there's no affiliation, there's no movement, there's no, you know, political group, there's nothing that Jesus Christ in him crucified. And, and that's why in his age and every age since, people hated him. What about my self-image? What about my self-respect? What about, you know, as we saw the other night, that's humiliating. And you know, it's exactly it's humiliating. You know how humiliating it was? That my holy son, who's never sinned, was utterly humiliated before the human race. Everybody at the trial said this man's done nothing wrong, and he was nailed between two trucks, naked. That's how embarrassing this is. And if I have any vision of how great I am, how wonderful I am, how far I've come along, I just go back to the cross and I go to Jesus and I say, Yeah, all I've got going for me is Jesus Christ. And the only way I get him is with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Jesus I turn. And that brings us to our fourth point. The result of the righteousness of God. <laughs> it, it solves two problems. The first is the lesser problem. That's the human problem. And you see, that problem is, how does a sinner like me get into a right relationship with a God like this? And the answer is by faith in Jesus. And that's why God is able to justify sinners who believe in him. Isn't that wonderful? It's greater than any fairy tale. It, 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 for the fairy tale, it takes magic. The pumpkin's got to be turned into a gold post. The white rat's got to be turned into a, a white horse. The frog has to be kissed and turned into a prince. But God doesn't do any of that magic. He sends his son to be everything that I could have been. And amazingly, everything that I one day will be. Isn't that amazing? The moment I see him, I will be like him. And so the result of the righteousness of God is that it justifies every and any sinner who comes to him with their hands up whether you're a kid, whether you're an adult. And I don't assume even in a gathering like this that everybody's saved. There's a gospel, there's a savior, it's a creed. For no good reason you can be justified. That is in terms of you. <laughs> but oh, every reason in the world because of him. And then the other thing is, all the way through the process, God maintains and upholds and vindicates his justice. Because I don't know how it all works, but there is some quid pro quo. I did all the sinning. Jesus did all the holiness. And he died so that I might live. And all through it, at every point, God is absolutely just and holy. Isn't that amazing? You know, you didn't have to bribe the judge. You didn't have to slip a little something to the lawyer on the side. 
you just come with your eyes wide open and you see yourself as you really are. You see Jesus as he really is. And you say, I'm coming. I'm coming. I was saved in the fall of 1966. I'm even as much, if not more, today than back then. And yet he's able to keep his people from falling. And he's able to present them faultless before the Father. And he would do it with exceeding, exceeding great joy. He's going to say, here am I and the children that you've given me, all that the Father has given to me, they've come to me and I've lost none of them. Lost none of them. Yeah, but every one of them gets wretched sinners. Oh, I know. I'm in the business of saving wretched sinners. It's the good people, the just people that can't be saved. But oh, if you're a wretched sinner, you come. And you drink and you eat and you taste and, and you always remember in this world, in one sense, you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the waves are like 90 feet high and you're holding under Jesus with your life. But you know the good news, he's holding on to you. You know the good news? This great priest who is my righteousness down here and died in my place is praying for me today. Not that things will go wonderful. Not that this will be heaven on earth. But he's praying that the Lord will keep me from falling and present me on that day to his great, great glory and praise. I like sports and um, every once in a while, especially with the dreams with all those stars, they'll have a great star come back and they'll put the sweater number up to the rafters and people give them a 10 minute. 15 minutes standing of this world, but it dies down. Because you know, there's a game to be played. But not with Jesus. It's going to be a massive standing ovation forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we'll never be bored. We'll never go to our watch. We won't be looking around. We won't. We'll be just in awe. Because then, when I see him, I know how much I am.